0: Hi, everyone. As you know, we're Trying to Be Kind, a podcast that's out to read books and texts about the TTP, TTRPG space, and as we discuss things with our own academic lenses. Hi, I'm
1: Mahar. And Mahar, what do you like about playing in games?
0: Oh no, oh no, Fiona, your question just... It just, oh, it foreshadows a topic, oh God.
2: What's your creative <laughs> agenda?
0: Oh my. oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> so the book is, the book is, the book. can someone introduce this book? I'm so tired of this book. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think the name of the book, let me check. I'm going to read it straight is from the Tabletop
0: cover. RPG Design in Theory and Practice at the Forge 2001 through 2012 by Palgrave Macmillan. Sorry, published by Palgrave Macmillan by William J. White. We've been yeah. reading this for the last six months. We took one breather episode. This is our seventh month of this text. And revisiting it has been.
2: <laughs> and this a- is the big episode.
0: Oh yeah, this is the big episode because we're this looking is the at big theory four. episode. It's the big theory episode. It's chapter four from GNS to the big model. But this brings us to always our introductory question. So Fiona, what was your introductory question for us for this episode?
1: What do you like about playing in games? Or as Jared put it, what is your creative agenda?
2: Well, my name is Jared, and personally, I like in games mostly just to see my friends say goofy stuff and do goofy stuff. That's all. So I guess like I'm a a goofulationist would be like my personal creative agenda.
1: I'm Fiona Maeve Geist and um, my voice is just like this. And I like playing games to play an unsuitable character and succeed through conventional means. Which <laughs> I think is simulationist. That seems right.
2: It's kind of got a gamest quality to it though, right? I guess it's not competitive enough to be fully gamest, but...
1: Yeah, like, my goal is to play, like, a very dumb person with a lot of NPC skills and a sword who just really wants to be a hero and largely dies horribly. But sometimes they succeed and it's glorious.
0: And snickering in the corner is Mahar. I I like playing games because uh, it's just I find it fun to do, (laughs) and I like the sound of my own voice.
2: That's a good reason. That's a great reason.
0: Yeah, you know, well, frustrated choir boy. In games, I get to be a soloist. Okay, anyway, here we go. (laughs) Okay, so we've been reading this text, and we're giggling over it because it's been such a... I don't want to say trial, and I don't want to say chore, it's been, it's, been it's been a challenge. It's been a
1: challenge. It's crucible. a crucible. Oh my like, God. look, like, in an academic program, right, like, we would have been done with this book in, like, a month. We would have, like, been doing this, like, two to three times a week where we meet up. And, like, it's nice to slow roll it, but also, like, it really reminds me of how, like, close reading of an academic text is really exhausting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's exhausting. I mean, I've spent more time reading this text than I did on my own thesis. I only had, what, four months to do my entire thesis. And yeah,
2: everyone on Twitter knows when we're recording, because in the days before recording, I brush up on the text, and then I immediately go to Twitter and start shouting. <laughs>
0: okay, so let's go to the text. Um The last few episodes have largely been about forge demographics and forge history. Now we're looking at forge theory, which some would argue would be the biggest and most lasting legacy of the forge. So, first impressions, y'all. What do you think of this chapter, forge theory, from GNS to the big model? Well, okay.
2: Uh, I'm going to start out on positive. I'm holding my
0: breath. I'm I'm actually nervous.
2: I'm going to start on a positive note. I think this chapter, more than the other chapters, does a pretty solid job of just, like, telling you what's up. Like, this is what the Forge was doing. These are the things they were talking about. These are the things that got said. Uh, So on, like, a reportage level, I think all the pieces are there, at least to my understanding of, like, what was going on at the Forge. Now, as far as conclusions drawn from that, we can get different and we can talk about the forge theory itself. But I think as far as like a book reporting what forge theory was it, it accomplished, it does the job.
1: Is that fair? I mean, I think this is the chapter that professor White wanted to write, right? Like I think in a lot of ways, the, the chapter that is most interesting to him, you know, where he pulls out Bakteen quotes Mm. and like really wants to like, get down in like kind of the nitty gritty of like developments in theory and do something that's more more of an intellectual history in a certain way um this is that chapter and i think like in a lot of ways it gets to the reportage thing like this this feels very comprehensive even if i will admit that i I'm going to be a bimbo this episode because I just don't understand GNS theory. Like I don't understand it. People can explain it to me and I will stare at you with blank incomprehension and, and I will ask questions and people will get frustrated.
0: Okay. My first impression of this text is that it's a glorified glossary.
1: Yeah.
0: So I'm like, which is oh. funny
2: because the forge actually wrote their own glossary.
0: It's like, okay, so these are what these terms mean according to the forge and a previous criticism I'd leveled at this book. It's still it's still here, which is and yet you do not point out to contemporary examples that still use these things.
2: Yeah. And that's I think where most of my criticism is gonna go. At least my criticism of the book is gonna go to, and that is like, yeah, this is this is all fine, but it doesn't do a very good job of pulling that, like putting that into any context now or even after the forge you know which is fine I guess like you can write a history text but with the way this book is framed which we've really (laughs) really hammered into over the over the time that we spent with the book you know this whole idea that people are forgetting the forge I feel like you can't do make that move and then ignore the present day implications of what you're talking about
0: well exactly because the problem is present which is that forgetting is the current issue that he wants to deal with and then my second thing is it's like there's a reason why people use academic as a synonym for trivial and when it doesn't have a framework towards praxis at least so far i haven't seen much of it i know he tries spoiler alert there's a game in this book um which he's actually invited us to play on twitter which again kind of makes me suspect are you sure you want us to play this game (laughs) i'm not sure you hear the best audience for this the fiona i think is game
1: i am game for this look because like i i want to address the the diagram in the room figure 4.1 the big model in graphical form because like
0: oh god when i saw that i was like Someone needs an information design specialist here <laughs> to make it's this so
2: good. It looks like a like a <laughs> academic shit post. It is it, the absolute best part looks, of this whole book.
0: It looks like something I used to have to do in Microsoft Word back in the nineties when you needed to make a presentation.
1: <laughs> Interestingly, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that like Ron Edwards made the original version of this diagram on the floor oh, yeah. like not that's that's definitely strong layout tools, um, but like. I guess what's interesting is, like, right, there's this diagram that's got a lot of terms and, like, organization and organizational hierarchies. And, like, I think that, like, as a taxa, right, like, this chapter's pretty good in that, like, there's a lot of terms and they get defined. But, like, okay, like, how many of the terms in this map do you see used in game design spaces, like, um, With the caveat that, like, I'm probably not the most 4G designer, right? Like, I would say that, like, Drift, um, you know, I still, you know, effectiveness, resources, positioning, um, player safety, which did teach me that apparently Lines and Veils are Edwards. I did not know that previously. Um, Yeah, same. Genre expectations, and then, like, maybe some of the stuff under dysfunctional play slash design dysfunctional or problematic play slash design like especially railroading i'm used to as terms but like most of this stuff i don't think caught on and i don't think has much influence on how people talk about games because like ron edwards wrote a lot like wait 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 i before we go there i think we're getting ahead of ourselves I'm getting because way ahead of myself because we're I'm very excited like, oh, about this diagram. This diagram you,
0: you, is what i you, you, you basically skipped 20 pages into the chapter. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm just counting it right now. I'm like, hmm, where, Fiona,
1: we Okay, so... <laughs> so the chapter
2: opens talking about GNS, right? Yep,
1: yeah. I'm sorry. I just wanted to skip the part that I understand. Here's a diagram. No, that's
2: fine.
0: It's fine, it's fine. But once again, Mahar here, like... <laughs> Just a little okay, structure. let's get back a little bit. I'll get back to Asia. But yeah, seriously, Jared, you were saying it. It starts off by elaborating on GNS.
2: Fiona like called me the other day in preparation for this, and just to ask, like, what asked me to explain GNS to to her. So if I can have a stab at it, I'm going to try and explain GNS in like the way that I understand it.
0: We should have a little like. Music thing here, like in you know, the background. thing you don't want to have like informational? The Jeffrey, videos. music
1: should be playing, except for I think that has a copyright.
0: Yeah, but one of those like you know, <laughs> informative, informative,
1: uh, <laughs> or like some of the music from like uh, <laughs> like being on hold with a telemarketing company. We're gonna in the leave 90s. it
0: to you, Jared, if you how you want to edit the episode. But <laughs> <I think laughs> we'll figure
1: it, we'll see it out. This. We'll do so,
0: something fun with it. So Jared um, explains. Jared explains (laughs) GNS. So
2: GNS comes out of the Usenet group, Rec.Games, I think, that this book refers to. And this is actually something that I feel like the book uh, pointed to in an earlier chapter. So it comes out of this Usenet group, and originally it was gamist, dramatist simulationist. And I think it's really, really important, and the, the book goes to some pains to point this out also. I think it's really, really important that Sort of in this nascent state, that uh, framework was used to talk about players and the way players can sort of present themselves to play. Right. So in a in a particular moment of play, that in which I have I as a player have to make a decision, I might make that decision along gamist lines or dramatist lines or simu- simulationist lines, and that sort of gets at how I'm justifying or what. You know paradigms i'm using what my ideology is about, and that moment all that business so when we get to the forge they change the the middle one the name of the middle one from dramatist to narrativist and that was like if i recall correctly just a logistical concern about there were there was something else named dramatist i think uh, one of the everway resolution mechanisms was named drama um, so they renamed it narrativism and this is where i'm gonna insert like my dogma into this There's a sly move that happens here right in the forge because they keep the rhetoric that you get around the usenet about this is descriptive of play. It is not prescriptive and it's specifically about players in play and they still say that a lot, but then you see it get immediately like in the same breath applied to game books. Um, So then suddenly it's a prescriptive uh, system that we, that they used to determine if a game book was coherent, right? So the idea is if I'm going to make a narrativist game, all of my systems need to support narrativist play very directly. And if my game does not do that fully at every moment, then it's in sort of forge language, it's incoherent and it's going to produce dysfunctional play. And that's, um, the book posits GNS construed broadly that way as the foundation, or at least the first big thing that the forge was discussing at its inception out of the Usenet group. Is that a fair assessment?
0: I think it's surprisingly fair. It will be surprisingly fair for some people hearing it from you. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I will agree on the whole notion that it's prescriptive, in the sense that it starts off as a way of how to approach games, but it also became a way of how to approach the evaluation of games, mm-hmm. which um, that's another conversation in itself. Like, can one know can one know design without recognizing the design of others? I think that's a very um, you know like aesthetic uh, question. Really, like, one can be an artist without being able to produce art, or one can can one produce art without being able to recognize other art. So I think that's that. I think that discussion belongs to that realm. But what I find more interesting here is that it is still very much didactic, uh, thing. Which, is? Yeah, it is. I mean, mm-hmm. like, it's very, it's very like this is how games must be, and when you get down to the testimonials of the games as much of the chapter goes through, you have a number of people, again, Paul shows up, uh, you have a few others, who talk about the usefulness, if not their conversion to the model. And that's where it becomes a little bit like, mm, 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 which is interesting, considering that later on, they drop talk of the theory and make an emphasis on actual play. So I'm just like, okay, it's almost like, conversation. I'm not sure how the conversations went. Again, the Forge is like several years past my time. And the idea of looking through the Forge to go to source threads is extremely daunting, let alone, you know, it's obscure. It's arcane to me now at this point. But I, my question would be like, when did they, what was the inflection point that said that you no longer needed to talk about theory, but rather look at the praxis of theory and that's why there was a focus on actual play, because it seems like towards the end, theory wasn't so important anymore. It was just, let's just see how this manifests in our games in practice. Yeah,
2: that's, that's certainly like the impression the book wants us to get of the situation. Um, I, I think a few times it gestures that like people were definitely still having those theory conversations, but it was a more divided thing. And Ron himself moved more toward actual play. Um, if I remember correctly. But but yeah, that definitely is the trajectory there. Actually, so I, I can talk about that a little bit. Um, and I'm going to try and be fair here because I'm not an academic, right? And I don't want to like, I don't want to overstep, but there's, I, I feel like that move toward actual play and away from what Jarrett might call whiteboard theory is sort of necessary because um because of the the way the theoretical approach was structured was kind of in my estimation fundamentally flawed and I'll I'll tell you what I mean by that. This chapter goes there's a long section of it about frame analysis right which I don't know I don't know if y'all know much about frame analysis you have no reason to but it's um I know it from rhetoric I know it exists outside of rhetoric as well but the, the thing is, like, you can use, say, frame analysis to talk about, like, a news broadcast, right? And you can say, here's how this news broadcast frames this particular news story, and that affects the way the audience interacts with the thing, right? So that's a very sort of rhetorical way of looking at frame analysis. And this book, the, this Forge book, goes to great lengths to show that the big model is fundamentally, like, rooted, it's an attempt at frame analysis, um, it may not have known that's what it was at the time, but that's for sort of the model that it's falling into. And I think the problem with that is when you start looking at play as a frame, you run into issues immediately because play is not, it's not a stable text. Like if we're looking at a, at a news broadcast, I can say, oh, look, we can talk about this news broadcast and the way it frames things. But play, it's like, well, are we, we would have to look at a specific instance of play Um, And I think that is sort of the impetus or at least the underlying momentum toward looking more at actual play or that's a, that's a factor in that move.
0: Let's get into that. That's actually page 145 and jumps very close to where Fiona wants to be. Can I just say one thing though? If the previous criticisms of the, of the, uh, of the book were like, Oh, it seemed to be, it might have looked white, but we're not quite sure. You know how it was very invalidating of raci- of like people's experiences and possible racism and sexism and so on. <laughs> Let's go on to this, page 145, uh, in reference to what a Jared was saying, uh, to quote, The big model can be in- understood as a kind of frame-theoretic approach, or at least being consistent with one. With creative agenda, occupying a very interesting conceptual position in the world. Really? Really? You're going to start giving declarative sentences now over things that are subjective? Really? Thanks a heap, sir.
2: Yeah, and that's like, that's repeated in the conclusion. So this is like, this is something of a thesis statement for this chapter. And it's just like, oof.
0: It's just... Wow, this is clearly the person's pet chapter because now, and I'm sorry to say this, if it sounds really salty, but it's been half a year of this, friends. <laughs> when previous language was invalidating and defensive of something, but when the time came to say, Oh, this is the integrity of the work, and your opinion came in, suddenly it's valid and everything it's just declarative all the way. It's it it and that's all. And that should be pointed out, I think, as proper critique. Because we're not just looking at a book here in terms of game theory. We're looking at a social uh, setting which was then used uh, and promulgated, supposedly, how games are done today. So if you want to have any true sociological analysis in our outputs and work, you need to be consistent with it all. That's all.
1: Well, um, let me just jump in here with another thing to get away from my precious diagram that I want to get to because I fucking love that diagram we'll need to just have that be a header image somehow for this episode but um look I think it's it's also there in I'm uncomfortable with the way that like criticism of the forge is presented as the usual stuff kind of as an ad nauseum where it's like there's a gesture towards generic RPG net threads or like etc and the one claim that he decides to drill down on is an isolated statement by like a cancelled person who in the defense of the author I don't think was cancelled as hard by the point that like this book was going into publication but by claiming that like the GNS theory is not science with to which like an obvious answer rather than a log thing about like philosophies of science is like of course it isn't like it's not (laughs) like I don't think Ron Edwards cared about there being like a null hypothesis I don't think that Ron Edwards tried to empirically measure simulationism like I don't think that like
2: he wasn't worried about I, falsifiability. Like, it's not a thing.
1: Yeah. I like, honestly I, think, yeah. Like, I, I, don't I think, think that like, yeah. <laughs> go, go, go. Sorry, sorry. No, no. It, and it's like interesting to me because it's like, but what's kind of there is that, like, it wants to be an empirical framework, right? Like, it wants to have, like, this very strong way of prescriptively and descriptively describing the world. And I think that's where a lot of the problems come from and where these usual, like, complaints come from of, like, if you do rhetorical ideological analysis, there's probably to some degree a case to be made that like, yeah, there's a favoritism towards like narrativism, quote unquote, if only because there's a greater interest in even talking about it. Like I am very confused about what simulationism allegedly is, right? I, I think gamism describes like, the Pavlovian feedback loops that games contain and like incidentally also challenge question mark but like narrativism like has a lot more terms it gets a lot more focus and it's like in a lot of ways the thing that like the theory is most made to address and yet like it's both not a theory that's trying to empirically measure reality but it's a theory that's trying to describe reality and also make strong claims about like what is a good reality or what is like why do games work good this is me just bimboing through this thing well Um, let's
0: let's look through this let's look through this and like you know let's use some dramaturgical theory here right Wow, I can actually like refer to my own field for once. Yeah, hit me. So let's assume that games are a form of theater, just for the sake of discussion, right? And so if we're going to say that it's theater, because you're telling a story and you're acting out a story and you're taking on roles and characters, and one could even argue that you have a director and all of you happen to be the playwrights of your play, one could then argue that this is collaborative theater. And what you're doing now is you're devising the work. So when you devise a piece as a community, you tend to share ownership over the final piece and over the final expression to borrow the term then, following whatever creative agenda that you have, right? Now, the question then becomes, why is it that the kinds of theater, so to speak, are reduced into genres which are very... You know, the nature of genre as such is that they are naturally amorphous and they will overlap on top of each other all the time. So my, my next question would then be, number one, why is there a need to bracket genre in games to this degree that how one approaches the devising of the theatrical piece, a.k.a. the game, is meaningful? And then secondly, why would you want to do that? And do you actually create meaning? So here's a good example of that. We've seen lots of plays where audience members are asked to interact with the play itself. Uh, a good example of that is uh, now it's like completely like missing my mind. That one where you're, you're when when Hamlet is played, but you're able to go all over the the, the warehouse or wherever the theatrical whatever is done, and you can like follow oh, yeah, the yeah. yeah. So that's immersive theater. The question then is is that a simulation or is that a narration Mm. you're literally in the play you are seeing the characters interact you are there and are you simulating what it's like to be in that situation because you're literally there and sometimes the set pieces are dressed to the point that it's you know or are you just are is it narration is it like are you looking there to witness the story as closely as possible and this isn't so, so far away from larp either so and larp yeah. also heavily intersects with like you know our game design like tabletop rpgs so it's this kind of like purist notion of where we should go that i'm kind of confused because as far as i was aware games are collaborative and can produce things, and um, and that's when creative agenda becomes a very like strange thing where it the implication almost to me anyway, and I I hope I'm reading this wrong, but the implication is like if you're with the wrong set of people in terms of your gaming values, you can never play together. You cannot have a simulation play with a narrativist. You cannot, and it goes down to the game itself where they say D and D is a bad game because it tries to be all three. And that's when I'm like, well, if it tries to be all three, then the game itself has to go towards a pure line. It also follows that you should segregate your players according to these, like, to this arbitrary notion of what play is. At least to me, it feels arbitrary. Right? So, doesn't that create then these communities where eventually, of course, if you're going to see that, it totally makes sense to me that you're going to see a future divide where people are going to say, um, oh yeah, now we're the story gamers, and because you said the game itself must be pure this in order to be played because its agenda is that clear then the designers and the players will also necessarily be a pure X, and that creates, com- that actually for me, that becomes a legacy of community and that is something we should consider in future readings, but there, I just, off my high horse I'm done, bye thank you I need my coffee
1: so i i think that's a good point and i think that like a correspondence i think is interesting and opened up in another window to check the timing is that like the magic the gathering player typology of you know tibby slash tabby uh fucking, uh is what is it uh jimmy johnny. johnny slash jenny and spike because spike is a gender neutral name um you know like came out in 2002 and is technically a tripartite agenda based thing with numerous subsets within it. And yet like I've, it it, it feels like a point of comparison for the Forge. <laughs> it just does. Yeah, I mean, that
2: was a very trendy thing to do at the time, right? You've got like Robin Laws doing that. You've got, um, oh shit. There were a bunch of them. Uh, there was the guy who did MMOs. That did um, hearts, diamonds, clubs, and spades. Um, oh yeah. So yeah, that was a really that was a big way, and I think it's I think it's important, at least to my reading of this, that most of the time, like if you look at, you know, the MTG psychographics that you just talked about, or my MMO guy whose name I can't remember, these are things that are coming out of the concerns of capital. Right. We're talking about trying to meet consumers' needs so that we can sell more product. And that's, that's, that is what it is. It's, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not here to like have that conversation necessarily, but um, I think th- it's important that that's a move that gets used in that space. And we don't get that discussion here very much. Right. Because we do get to talk about markets and stuff in the Forge. Um, obviously we get to talk about publishing and being independent and all of that, but not in terms of GNS, not in terms of, you know what I mean? There's like a, there's an assumed purity to the theory outside of the money concerns that I think rings
0: false on its face. Like do you design for buyers basically, uh-huh. and it seems like they don't, well, okay, so for you now, let's. I think we're. I think it's time. We've been bringing this term up a lot, and we're we're now <laughs> yeah. on the page where your, where your beloved, um, where your your uh, you, uh, anyway. Your diagram, your beloved diagram, is okay. So, page one hundred forty-six. Creative agenda, understood in forged terms, as the aesthetics priorities of a group of players, has no direct equivalent uh, to something previously covered in finer cover. It may be somewhat related to what McKay calls script or the narrative frame, since it includes both GMs and players' intentions for play. Um, Moving forward, it's important to note that from the Forge perspective, creative agenda is less a separate frame than aesthetic shaping the judgments, decisions, and actions taken within other frames. It permeates different frames rather than being strictly a separate mode. And as we continue on, Uh, There is some talk of uh, players being raconteurs. Um, To the extent that this narrative frame is motivated by a sense of purpose or intentionality, it might be equivalent to the creative agenda. Okay, and then as we continue on, there's quite a lot of uh, textuality here. But I think what should be um, highlighted is by conceiving of creative agenda as a constitutive Late motif for identity across the multiplicity of themes, the concept serves as a model of motivation that can help role players coordinate that imaginative activity and help scholars operating within the frame analytic tradition regain that, quote, richly textured sense of experience initially promised by phenomenology, unquote. That's a lot. I'm like, whenever someone brings in the big P and says, let's assume you know some who, Searle, <laughs> I die. So I die I've a little inside. I've had ideas
1: one and two. Um, I've actually taken a grad school class on Husserl and phenomenology, <laughs> and I'm not good at it. I'll be honest; I was the like worst in my grad class at understanding Husserl. Um, well,
2: you're you're our resident phenomenologist here. Okay, Fiona.
0: but let's <laughs> so okay, so let's let's discuss what phenomenology is first, so that we can okay, talk about so creative agenda.
1: So phenomenology is like with who's and like he's the godfather of it and then you get into like a lot of stuff with academic influence and like who's actually hairs and etc um anyway what he wanted to do is essentially create a philosophical school for describing perception right like he wanted to look at essences and look at like what is beyond the ability of sort of empirical description to describe right like In a weird way, like, what Husserl wanted to do to some degree is, like, look at art and then look at nature and then say, like, what is it that I see in this art that I see in nature but that isn't physically present in them, right? Like, the goal is to find, like, transcendent things, and it's also to find, like, structures of seeing, right? Like, he was interested in optical illusions. Husserl wrote a lot, right? And a lot of what he wrote... (laughs) <laughs> was methodology like, for seeing yeah.
0: yeah, so like, let's go to that methodology, right? So basically, okay, so basically, Husserl argued, phenomenologically speaking, if you want to be phenomenological about it, you look at an object, look at a concept, and then you bracket it in what is called the epoque. Oh, my God.
1: Yes, you've got the epoque. Beautiful. <laughs> I thought you would have tapped the so like you. and you're going okay. into the FOK. Yeah, let's talk about the kill. <laughs> let's talk about like analyzing the substance of the substance.
0: Okay, so
1: what do you bracket The episode the where we break into phenomenological thinking, and also by I love that I, I get to be the one down. who's
2: like the audience stand-in here.
1: <laughs> I am dying.
0: I'm dying because I'm so full of wankage. This is just such high level. Okay, Mar. <laughs> okay so uh, like, I feel gross saying this and I know that I'm gonna miss I'm, 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 I'm depending on like lady doctor Fiona you know, to
1: correct me so if it's about pronunciation I, that would be a mistake
0: <laughs> like, like the theory so basically you have a bracketing of the concept and in bracketing the concept what you're trying to do is you're trying to separate the earthly the worldly or the preconceived from the concept itself and in doing so, you look towards the truth and you look towards the essence of that concept. So <laughs> when you talk about creative agenda, it sounds to me like what they're arguing is that in bracketing the game through th- an aesthetic, uh, the game be- serves as the, epic. the serve the game serves as the means by which you bracket the concept that you're trying to investigate as players and GM. So like, for example, I'm assuming, and I hope I am right, is that um, if you're going to look at things uh, phenomenolo- phenomenologically through a game, it would say like, okay, I want to know, for example, what love is. So you're going to bracket love within the epoch of the game. And then that the game could be its, its rules, its systems, its uh, agreements, its techniques, which they will focus on later on. And then from there, in interacting with the game and interacting with the medium in itself, it's a means of framing, going back to frame theory and frame analysis, the experience of whatever it is you're doing. And that is why it sounds like the creative agenda is what you're trying to pursue in that bracketing.
1: And that's where it's interesting for me, right, and some of this is a Jared point that, like, I copped by getting secret talks to Jared the day before <laughs> because I don't understand GNS theory, but is, there's the claim and it's on page um, 148 uh, that Ben Lehman makes of, we're going to talk about nothing that isn't the players of the game which I highlighted because I think that's what's really interesting about GNS theory is like phenomenologically, right, which I actually think is a really good match for it in that it's trying to make prescriptive and descriptive claims. It's trying to like isolate a moment and then like talk about what's happening is that GNS theory is absolutely diametrically in many ways opposed to talking about players and games because it Mm. is largely talking about texts and looking at the structure of a text to extrapolate players, which is a lot more like literary theory or certain parts of religious studies about like, you know, studying rituals and liturgy to try and figure out like what is the like, what is the symbolic meaning of a liturgical action or, you know, like um, various schools of literary analysis um but like good 11 us you
2: know, for that that would be fun
1: yeah but like there's kind of the thing of like there's a whole forum of actual play that seems to be siloed away from the discussion of the phenomenology of like what makes games that seems to be kind of like the men who stare at books and i know that not everyone in the theory section was a man but like it it was prominently men and i thought it was a very good joke mm-hmm. um but like Look, like that's kind of what <laughs> what interests me, right, is that like you you'd think that like this theory would strongly start referencing games, right? Like start referencing like play sessions and like people's games being played, and yet it it's just theory about theory about theory about theory about books.
0: Well, it's because it's not a okay so this is where i have to be fair to the author a rare moment indeed because i feel like i've been bashing i'm being unfair to be clear
1: i'm like i i've got a, a agenda or a belief and it's pretty strong in terms of how i bounce off gms so like please well
0: this is a not a bounce. book about game design though i think it should be very clear this is not a book that teaches you how to design games. Mm. In no way have I seen any kind of praxis or mentorship or adv- advisory thing given this book, so I don't think Doctor White put that upon himself to teach people how to make games. He made a book that simply talked about how the Forge made games.
2: Definitely, and I think I think the trouble crops up, and this is this is the trap that I fall in in talking about this book, especially this chapter of this book, is. Uh, like, and that's is also why I open this with like, I think this does a pretty good job of laying out what the forge was about and what they were doing, um, at least on a theoretical level, because my the, the trap that I fall into is I immediately want to take this like theoretical framework that's ostensibly at least for the forge about how, how to make games or, or trying to understand better how to make games and just poke every hole in it, just rip it apart. But that's not the book that I'm interacting with there. That's like the, the subject of the book, you know what I mean?
0: It's not. It's not. I mean it simply houses concepts that I think we have encountered outside of the book and as a result we blame the book for our interactions outside of it. So we need to be fair. Mm-hmm. Trying to be kind. Trying yeah, to be, be kind.
1: kind. To be to clear like McCabot odd like that particular thing is that like the the Forge's theorizing that we're writing about the lineage of it seems to be developed in conversations in the theory section of the Forge. And that's why I find it interesting that like as a chronicler, there's not more discussion of this siloing effect or of like how they didn't try to develop like a a theory for playing a game and phenomenologically observing, even though like the phenomenological ish play report is definitely a Forge artifact that like, I actually think, helps um but that's jumping ahead in this section and yeah it's it- it's
2: interesting because i think if we start looking at this phenomenologically or at least from what you're saying here fiona it seems like uh and for maybe this is me reframing what you're saying uh, but it seems like that recasts the idea of the forge actual play into something that is itself theoretical like it's it's participating in theory but they ended up, at least on the f- the, the way the forms are described, they ended up being quite, as you say, siloed away, very strictly divided. And that seems odd. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, like, you'd think that, like, the way that these sort of game design theory things would develop, and, like, there's kind of this in the book, right? Being fair, there's kind of a lot of people that are interviewed that kind of say, I ran into a bit of the theory, it made me think about something it gave me permission to think about games a certain way i went and i designed my game and this is my game and it went through like the forge and i think that like that's maybe in some ways the the value of the theory is just that like people walking into it sometimes get ideas and that it might not be about the theory as a cohesive whole but the, the discussion of those threads doesn't talk about an evolution based on like the people that take place in these daily discussions hopping over and play testing people's games every week, right? Like which mm-hmm. is kind of, you know, I try to play in and play test other people's games constantly, even stuff, you know, where I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to be a good player in this, <laughs> like, you know, like because mm-hmm. I, I want to try and learn something. Okay, so here we go. Can
2: I? well uh, uh, oh, you first. Sorry. Me, Can you I first. ask? But
1: wow. I'm interested, because I
2: haven't really looked at the next chapter, I think. The Communication in the Forge chapter. Does that get into... Because I know at least... I think both of you have gone through the
1: whole no, book. No, I've not read the next chapter. I am, oh, okay. I'm um, chronologically well, limited to the essential experience of this chapter. And it's probably going to be another episode, given we're at like 46 yeah, minutes I right just
2: I, I suspect that maybe some of what we're complaining about missing in this chapter might be there or maybe Um, should be there
0: okay so honestly i haven't read that particular chapter in five months um what i tend to do is i read the book twice thinking this podcast we were doing would only last for two months (laughs) and we just laugh about the book (laughs) but it turns out each chapter has given me something to raise my eyebrow (laughs) so i only read i only read the the previous chapter to refresh what i read half a year ago so let me let me get my copy of uh of the, the forge book and let's see if i can uh, very quickly um, recall communication in the forge just to answer your question jared and the meantime, there is a
2: section here called actual play as dialogic genre
0: Oh yeah, that's getting
2: to me. Uh, Like uh, 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 page one ninety five.
1: Well, because there's the the play report versus act like session report e or whatever terms he uses description, which honestly I don't think is as hard and fast a tax now as it used to be.
0: Oh yeah, okay. Now that I'm looking over uh, that chapter, go read the threads communication the forge. It is more. Yeah, uh, actual play becomes goes there and there is some discussion on on like how it's handled and dealt with. So yeah. I'll, I'll yeah, at I, least I'm, cross
2: my fingers and hope that we get some yeah, discussion of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. They do talk yeah, about gonna,
0: like final I'm fantasy I'm and railroading quite a bit point. as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh well, you know, what you know, Fiona, I think because we're actually at, <laughs> I can't believe we've been speaking almost an hour about oh, is, Are we already there? We're at oh, 49, yeah. Fernando. 40 Okay, Oof. like I think we should end towards an attempt at describing Fiona's favorite diagram. Oh, <laughs> the diagram? The diagram. Yes.
1: Yeah, the diagram. So the diagram. Try to imagine the thing that we're describing and then later look it up and ask did any of us describe it. So I'll
2: try and that. put a link to like a a screen of it in the episode description or something. I don't know if,
0: if we're even... Are we allowed to do that? I don't that's know.
1: That's
2: fair use. we, well, yeah, it's like, fair use. We're commenting on it, and that's a okay. very small.
0: Okay, all right. So imagine I mean, this. It, we can imagine
1: some blingy filters.
0: Okay, so imagine, if you will, let's see. Um, <laughs> this is a good, like... This is, like, interesting. An interesting exercise in description. Imagine, if you will, one large box. <laughs> on the <laughs> top right, you will see there, in bold, social contract. Inside this large square is a smaller square, but almost at its same width and height that says exploration. Shared imagined space. And then underneath it in more brackets, in parentheses, setting system, character, situation, and color, then bracketed to say transcript. Underneath is yet another box which says techniques, and there's a whole list of what you can do for setting system, character, situation, color. And a smaller box called ephemera, or the moment-by-moment play the GNS tells, which is then bracketed to lead to actual play, which is then bisected by a large violator arrow that says, creative agenda.
2: That creative agenda arrow makes my life. It is
0: so... My 16-year-old self is thinking, this is great design. Because that's all you could do with Microsoft.
2: <laughs> it's very word art. Yeah, it's
0: very. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just it no. brings me back. It brings me back. But yeah, like Fiona, what about this diagram made you so pleased this punch to look at it?
1: OK, so like you've got the big box that contains all all of these things, because like this is supposed to be a layer diagram where the social contract is under everything or over everything along with it is also suffused with the jaunty arrow of the creative agenda um and the social contract mostly covers you know like dysfunctional things that can happen in social situations like games within that is a a nearly as large box that says exploration and is about like the things that you explore and like This is what a transcript is, which is like if you wrote down everything that happened in a gaming session, which like I don't think anyone's ever actually done other than is like a shit post. Then there's kind of like the smaller rectangle polygon. I'm not a mathematician or even a good whatever knowing shapes (laughs) has, you know, techniques which we've covered. And then there's a small box within that that's got like ephemera, which is actual play. And, you know, that links back to Creative Agenda because it suffuses everything which is within the social contract and it's, like, the scale. And, you know, I I love this thing because, like, this just feels like when, you know, a lot of fields that don't translate well into, like, certain sorts of visualization but have, like, required me to, like, do PowerPoints, specifically philosophy, frequently fucking looks like this, where it's, like, it's not a field that's selected strongly for, like, like design majors, you know? Like, I was considered good because I would just put, like, two stick figures into, like, a thing and have them have a conversation, you know? It it reminds me of just, like, trying to make do with very minimal office software. To yeah, see. it's
2: fascinating to me because, like, I, I've seen versions of this diagram in the past, right? Because <clears throat> I'm pretty sure this is... Uh, a recreation and amendment of a diagram that Ron Edwards made uh, some time ago. And it's always looked completely like batshit to me, like completely incomprehensible. And, but like looking at it now and really sitting down with it, and maybe it's that I read this chapter and it did a good job of explaining things to me, but I feel like I had a pretty good handle on Forge Theory before that. There's very little actually said here you know what I mean? You've got like the social contract box. So it's like, yeah, you're playing with other people and then you've got the shared imagined space box. And it's like, yeah, yeah, magic circle. And then there's some techniques. You know what I mean? Like there's very little actually said here. And I think that's probably why the chapter goes to great lengths to harp on that creative agenda arrow, which by the way, I don't know if we mentioned specifically, creative agenda is what they ended up calling GNS, right? So it's their their synonyms. So there's this creative agenda arrow, and the, uh, Dr. White goes to great lengths to really call out the novelty of that arrow, which is like, yeah, sure. That's really the only thing going on here. The fact that they're claiming that the creative agenda, the GNS, sort of suffuses, the, you know, in the Heideggerian sense, it penetrates everything.
0: I'm sorry. Which is
2: like, yeah, sure.
0: No. no one's allowed to be penetration like, the word. Fashion. With like, the Heideggerian sense. Like, <laughs> when we're talking penetration, let's it's, let's make sure it's Heidegger, okay?
1: <laughs> no. No, like absolutely not. No Heideggerian penetration. <laughs> yeah, no thank you. Um okay. Uh, I think that
0: I think this might be our time. Yeah, I um, think that's it everyone uh to our listener this is a rather like i wouldn't say it's a problematic chapter but i would say it does give you the most to consider from a purely theoretical standpoint and i have to agree with yona that this is probably the chapter that dr white wanted to write the most
1: 100 percent. yeah like from that standpoint like bang up job i have objections but they're objections about like the strength of like counter argument being presented which admittedly it's hard to do a good summary
0: I mean at the end of the day it's still it's this is the least objectionable chapter
1: <laughs> and yeah. considering
2: there was really no prior to this chapter being written I didn't know of any like yeah,
0: this feels like good overview
2: of what forge theory is and what the fuck they're talking about at all so it's, it's nice that it, it does function as that, I think.
0: Yeah. We are ending with faint praise. <laughs> We're ending <laughs> on a kind note. We're ending <laughs> on a kind